So we've looked at a few different themes so far in our Advent series. So we started off with longing about how there's just this inner thing that's going on inside of us in this Advent season, this Christmas season that just kind of brings this yearning, right? So Jesus has come, yes, but we're waiting for like the finality of his kingdom to come. We're waiting for King Jesus to come back and to make all things new. And so we're this, there's this anticipation that's just going on inside of us because we want Jesus to come back. Like we look around us, we, we titled our series, A Weary World Rejoices. Like it's been hard. We look at the world and everything that's going on and it's just like, Jesus, I want you to come back. Like there's this longing that takes place in the Advent season. Then we, last week, we looked at hope. That there's this beautiful hope that we have in this Advent season that Jesus, he did come. Factually, like God in human flesh was here. He came and he lived and he died and he's alive. And he's at the right hand of God. We have this eternal hope that God is coming back for us again. He is going to make all things new. And then tonight we're looking at the theme of joy. Now, this theme of joy, like, is not just an Advent theme, is it? Like, this is just a generic theme that everybody talks about when it comes to the Christmas season. I mean, every single one of us, if we were to walk out of this room, even before you came into this room, if we were to go to talk to somebody in society, it's like, hey, what are the big things about Christmas? It's like, oh, joy. Like, everybody has joy. Like, I mean, it's universally acknowledged that, like, cold people are a little, just a little bit warmer, right, in the Christmas season. Like, you can go and talk to them. They're just a little bit more jovial as you're talking with them. I mean, you go and you, you have these stingy people. You have Scrooge. That's kind of like the epitome of this, right? You have stingy people that turn generous during the Christmas season. You have strangers that appear as friends in the Christmas season. I mean, if you had, like, this, this monitor that was in, your arm in the Christmas season that just was kind of ranking our joy, just be sprucing up with like holly and Christmas trees and eggnog and whatever goes along with the Christmas season, right? Like there's just joy. I mean, even like people's morality can kind of, their moral compass has like a little higher scale in this in this uh, Christmas season, like I remember watching an interview with uh, Drew Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon and she was talking about how her purse was stolen and then uh, just a few days later it was returned with a note inside of it with everything that was in there. It's like, hey, I just felt bad and I wanted to return your purse. Like there's like, there's something about the Christmas season that just joy just permeates for a matter of 25 to 31 days across all of human society. The Christmas season, it just has this effect on us, doesn't it? Well, here, the theme of Advent, though, is not just this joy that lasts for 25 to 30 days, but it's about this all-consuming joy that has invaded our world. That's the theme of Advent. Not that it's just like this short season that we can get up and get excited, but there's this joy that has invaded our world that doesn't fade away. Now, growing up, like if I were like, to be really honest with you, like joy was just like this thing that like, well, what does it really mean though? 
right? So like, if you grew up in the church, you had people that were just really skittish on like their definition of joy. So I had some people, I remember talking about that it is an emotion, that there's just this elation that comes over you. That's what joy is. It's kind of like whenever your baby says your name for the very first time, it's just like your heart leaps out of your chest. There's like joy that's going on inside of you. But then some people are like, no, 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 it can't be just this emotion because emotion is so trivial, like it's fleeting. It doesn't last. So it's like the joy of a Christian, it can't just be this emotion because our, the joy of a Christian doesn't, isn't something that ever leaves. It's, what you're talking about is happiness. It's not real Christian joy. It's just happiness. But if you're looking at our passage tonight, I think it's impossible to say that joy doesn't fall somewhere on the range of emotions. If you're looking at our passage tonight, you see Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant. She's past her child-rearing years. Like, God has done this miraculous thing inside of her. And when she goes to meet Elizabeth, here's what it says. I'll read the verses again. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, your child will be blessed, exclamation point. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Like, if this isn't an emotional response, I don't know what is. There's this, this, there's something that's going on inside of Elizabeth that at the, the coming of Mary and everything that's going on in Elizabeth and everything that's going on in her body, she's it, literally, the baby leaps inside for joy. There's an emotional response. And look at the word of the Lord that's confirmed here for Mary, all right? So what's Mary's response? I mean, she goes to visit Elizabeth. Gabriel says, hey, here's your evidence that there really is gonna be a baby that's in your tummy, even though you're a virgin. Like, you can go visit Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. She goes, the word of the Lord is confirmed. And so what's Mary's response here? She bursts out in song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Look, I... I just don't know how you read these instances and see anything but emotional response. There's something that is happening inside of them that produces this incredible joy, this incredible emotion because of what God is doing in their midst, which is why I love this definition by John Piper. Here's what he says, Christian joy, and we're gonna use it for how we think about joy tonight. Here's what he says. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit and as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and the world. So this definition, I think, depicts perfectly what's happening in this scene that we see with Elizabeth and Mary. It's an emotion that is felt in both Mary and Elizabeth's soul. It's produced by the Holy Spirit and it causes them to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God in both the word and in the world. So here's what I want us to do, all right? We're gonna use this definition just to kind of unpack this whole entire passage, 
All right, here's what we'll see. All right, so what you have, I want us to really dive into Mary's song here. All right, so what you have going on here is Mary is bursting out in song for what God is doing in her life. And we get a, this song just allows it to kind of be a window into her soul for us to kind of see what is producing the joy inside of Mary. And here's what we'll see. We'll, we'll see that she sees the beauty of Christ in the Bible and that which she sees the beauty of Christ in the world. And it elicits a response from you and me. All right, so here's, let's start with the first one, all right? Let's unpack this together. We're gonna look at verses 46 through 50. What you first see here is that the beauty of Christ in the world is what is, is making Mary's soul just jump with joy, all right? So here's what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation for those who fear him. So notice what is happening here, all right? So Mary was met by an angel with this incredible news, right? That's what we looked at last week as we are unpacking hope. The news has been confirmed by her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant. This is the sign. This is the evidence that, hey, this is legit. This is what Gabriel came and told me. That wasn't just some weird dream. It wasn't some weird food that I had the previous night that just gave me like this weird dream. No, like this was real. Like what happened was real life. It's confirmed by what Gabriel has already told me. Both Mary and Elizabeth are overcome with joy to the point that Mary bursts out in song. And then what does she start singing about? The character of God. She starts singing about the character and the qualities of God. Now, this isn't something that I think would often pull us to the edge of our seat, that like you hear a song and it's just like, you, this elation and you're like talking about the qualities of God, but beyond the fact that Mary starts the song with the content of the character of God, it's also kind of, it's also peculiar a little bit because of what's happening in her life, right? So it's peculiar because this news brought complexity to Mary's life, not simplicity. See, she's engaged. She's a teenage version. She's all of these things in a male-dominated society at this point in time. And not only is she likely to lose her fiance, which we see that like Joseph tries to do without God's intervention in his life, that that's where things were headed. She's also the social outcast now. I mean, it's basically without the affair, like the scarlet letter all taking place within the, the scope of like the people of God. That's sort of like the scene that is setting up here. And then, but what's so crazy is like Mary's singing about the goodness and the character of God. She like bursts out in joy with song. And this is like the first things off of her lips. So why in the world would Mary start her song like this? I'll tell you why. It's because Mary has experienced the living God. You see, from what we know about Mary in the Gospels, she was devout in her faith, right? Like she was a law-keeping teenage girl 
We see later after Jesus' birth that she would travel to go meet with God at the temple. Like Mary knew a lot about God probably by this point in her life, including the qualities of his character. But now, look, she's experienced these qualities in real life. These aren't just Bible facts that she learned in Sunday school anymore. These are personal encounters where she not just knows these things about God, but God has actually shown up and she's experienced these qualities that she's been taught about for so many years. When she's singing a common name for God where she says the mighty one, she's talking about the mighty one of Jacob. She's no longer singing an empty title, but now it's a very personal one. Like this God that was the God of Jacob, the God that was my forefathers, that he, he showed up and he wrestled with my great, 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 great granddad. Like he showed up and he's appeared to me and he's fulfilling his promises through me. This isn't an empty title for her anymore. This is a very personal title. He's done great things for me is what she says in her song. When Mary sings about God's holiness, that he's incomparably different from us, she's not reciting these Bible answers that she learned from the the teachers and the Pharisees that were in the temple, but she's retelling her personal experience. She saw Gabriel and she heard God's word from Gabriel. What other God does this? What other God comes and meets and speaks to someone like me is what Mary's thinking. When she sings about the mercy of God that extends from generation to generation, she's not just telling you something she heard God did for a person this one time. She's speaking her reality. That, that's why she bursts out in song. These facts about God from the Bible are no longer these colorless truths to her, but now they're these, this huge painting that's just smeared with all the beautiful colors. Like, they're beautiful. The character of God, the qualities of God, they're beautiful to Mary now because she's experienced it personally. And look, like, here's what I think Luke is trying to convey to us. Remember, he's writing a letter to someone else trying to tell him the story about Jesus. And so as he's writing this letter to Theophilus, I can imagine that he's just like, hey, Theophilus, like, if God shows up to Mary, if he shows up to Zechariah, if he shows up to Elizabeth, he'll show up and he'll meet with you. That's what he's trying to portray through this story. That look, there's this God that all of these character qualities are true. And even in the midst of them being true, he's come here to be with you. Joy is a theme of Advent, not because the church is trying to find some commonality with the world. It's not this Paul Rudd gif, you know, where he's like pointing at like, we're pointing back at each other like, hey, like, hey, look at us. We got something in common here. That's not what's going on. No, joy is the theme of Advent because it's trying to show us a completely different type of joy. This joy that does, it's trying to awaken inside of us this reality that there's this joy that doesn't bail when the calendar turns to January. It's trying to show us that there's a joy that's not wrapped up in presence, but it's wrapped up in a person. And that person is alive. 
Not just like for the next 70 years, but for all eternity, sat down at the right hand of God. Advent is a yearly reminder that the all-consuming joy that has infiltrated our world, the God of all creation that put on human flesh, the mighty one of Jacob that came to earth, the God who is utterly unlike us, has become like us. God has made himself known. And he'll do that with you. See, Mary experienced him and she's filled with joy, bursts out in song. She sings about her God that she knows personally. And she's saying, you can know him too. He's that personal. Yeah, he's holy and he's completely different from us. He's completely other. But he's also deeply personal and he'll know you. He'll meet with you. Now, look, I know, like, whenever you hear stuff like this at times, like, you just have all the things from your past that can kind of rush to the forefront of your mind of, like, no, this can't be true for me. This can't be true for me. I know the things that I've done. Maybe other people don't. Maybe, like, you've completely just kind of shut it down, stuffed it down, and people don't know what's going on in your life, but you know that God does. And you're like, this can't be true for me. Well, the birth narrative is proof to us that there's no one that is too low for a personal encounter with the living God. Not only did God meet Mary in her humble condition, he also came through Mary in her humble condition. And the birth narrative of Jesus should give us this trust in the invitation that he gives later in his ministry to come to him. You see Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me. Look, because I am lowly and I'm humble in heart. He received the quality traits of his mom. And you will find the rest for your souls. So look, the Bible is communicating, God is communicating through the Advent season, through this particular passage that he wants to know you, that he wants to meet with you, that he wants to spend time with you. And so look, here's my challenge for you this Christmas season, all right? Before Christmas Day comes around, get away and spend an hour with God. Get away, take your Bible, and just get away and spend time with God. Reflect on what this Christmas day means for you. I mean, it's the the plan of salvation enacted in human history. That's what Christmas day is. That you have this God who humbled himself, as we saw in Philippians, to the point of coming down and putting on human flesh that he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. But he came down, he put on human flesh, he lived the life that you and I lived. He, look, this is true. He died for you and me. He rose three days later. He's alive and he's coming back again, like the plan of salvation. So look, go get away with God. Like get into Ephesians 2, just sit with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 where you can look at just the amazing beauty of God's grace in your life. Get away with the parable of the prodigal son. Just sit with it. Put yourself in the shoes of the son that ran away. 
that comes to the realization of what has happened and transpired in his life. And he comes back to the dad and the dad is coming. He's sprinting after him. He's picking up his dress. He throws his arms. He doesn't even get the words off of his lips. This whole entire speech that he's put together for how he's gonna come and plead for his dad's forgiveness. He can't even get it off his lips because the father's come and completely embraced him. Open up and go to Romans chapter eight. For there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Sit with the forgiveness that you have in Christ. The assurance that Paul works out in Romans chapter eight. Go to Philippians chapter two. Sit with the reality of what God did on Christmas. And look, I'm not a betting guy. But if you do this, God's gonna show up. He's gonna meet with you. The beauty of Christ in his word is gonna stand out to you. And you know what the response for you is gonna be? Joy. Delight. Favor. This is the first part of what Mary's working out, teasing out in her song. The theme of joy. And it starts with God and the beauty of Christ in the word. But it doesn't stop there. She, she keeps going. We see this in verses 51 through 55. Here's what she says. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He satisfied the hunger with, hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. What is Mary speaking of here? Like this, this is God literally like, not only did God enter into the world with human flesh, but like what she's saying is that his kingdom came with him. Mary's speaking here of God's kingdom invading the present one. That's what's happening in these verses that Mary's doing. In Mary's song, God is flipping the world on its head. The proud are scattered, the strong are toppled while the lowly are exalted, the hungry are satisfied while the rich are sent away. It's a great reversal that's taking place. God is fixing what is broken. And Mary sings a song of joy because of what she knows that this baby that resides in her belly is going to do for the world. She's singing about it. Think about the world that Jesus was born into, all right? This just blows my mind that Mary would write this with all this kind of going on in her world. The acting King Herod. He's jealous of a baby. A baby that was just born to a no-name girl from a no-name town. And he orders that all boys two years old and younger be massacred in and around Bethlehem. There's violence, there's injustice, there's abuse of power, there's homelessness, there's refugees that are fleeing the brutality that's going on in their hometown. There's families that are literally ripped apart. There's overwhelming grief. And this, is, this isn't even touching what's going on within the Roman Empire that's all around them, right? Just debauchery that's everywhere. 
But Mary sees the beauty of what God is doing in the world through the baby that she's about to give birth to. He will bring his kingdom into this world and he's gonna turn this world upside down. And this is what we see with Jesus in his life and ministry, isn't it? We see Jesus scatter the proud. Think about his conversations with the Pharisees. They come, they question him, they try to get him to trip up, they try to get him to make some type of declaration that they can kill him. But what does Jesus continually say to these people? Don't you know the scriptures? Haven't you seen what the word of the Lord says? And what happens? They can't respond to him. The proud are scattered. In Jesus' ministry, he exalts the lowly. He, he teaches his disciples, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you see actual accounts of this in the life and ministry of Jesus, don't you? I mean, take, for instance, the widow's offering. Jesus is sitting at the temple and you have these wealthy men that are just giving out of their own wealth. And then he sees this widow woman that puts two cents into the giving basket that's going around. And he looks at his disciples and says, she gave more than everybody else in this room. They're like, what? What are you talking? Like, no, they they were like turning their pockets inside out. There's droves of money. He's like, no, no, no. She gave out of her, her poverty everything that she had. Everybody else in this room is just giving out of the surplus that they have. She gave everything that she had. He exalts the lowly and he topples the mighty. He satisfies the hungry. On multiple occasions, we see that Jesus feeds the multitudes and it's not like a scarcity kind of thing. Like there's, there's baskets full that's left over. Like people ate their fill. And Jesus did this out of a miracle. He sends the rich away, empty. You can't hear this without thinking of the rich young ruler that walks away, right? And then he topples the mighty because Jesus At the end of his ministry, even though he lived perfectly, he'd done nothing wrong. He's crucified. But in his resurrection, he defeats the most mighty, the chief of all authority in all of human history, Satan, sin, and death, and he topples it. And no longer, its it's bondage has been broken and no longer can hold you down when we place our faith in Jesus. He's dealt with all of this. Now, even with this, right, we look around at us. I mean, we, we're weary. We look around at us and we're like, well, it feels like the world that I live in is a lot more like the one that you just described that Jesus was born into. I mean, the news that's coming at us with all the things that are taking place in our world, like we very much feel like the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. As we get reminders all the time. And no doubt, the present, the present kingdom has not completely faded away. But if you look closer, may I, may I even dare say that like we look beyond ourselves? God's kingdom is advancing here in this world. It is. So listen to this, all right? I have a number of different statistics, all right, that I've kind of like put together for us, all right? So in 1900, more than half the world's population was unevangelized, 54.3%. In 2020, 
that percentage has decreased to 28.3%. The gospel's getting out. The number of Christians in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970 to 386 million in 2020. While it's estimated that 2 billion people are followers of Jesus um, as of 2021 by Gordon Conwell, so you're going to see some like differing like things, but all of them are showing kind of the same trends. They project that the number will be 3.4 billion by 2050 because of the current growth of Christianity across the globe. According to Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing Christian movement in the world. 20 years ago, five to 10,000 people at most in Iran were, would, commit, would call themselves Christians. Now, in 2021, 800,000 to 1 million. The largest population of Christianity is in the South, in some of the most desolate places, some of the most ravaged places across the globe, but the gospel is going forward. Mary is overwhelmed with joy because of the beauty of what Christ was doing in the world. And look, if we look close, if we look close, we can see that same beauty that's happening in our world as well. Here's what this should produce in us. It should produce both joy and desperate prayer. But the joy and desperate prayer, the beauty of Christ is to be found in the world. You can look at these movements that are happening across the globe. You can be overwhelmed with joy that the gospel is going forward, that God's kingdom is advancing. But at the same time, it should move us to want that same movement here amongst us. It should. The numbers that I just read off aren't what's happening in our society. In St. Louis alone, religious activity in the last 10 years has decreased by 20%. To like flip everything that I just told you for what's happening here in our city. Less than 18% of Metro St. Louis would affiliate themselves with an evangelical church. That's a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. This should lead us to pray with a sense of desperation that what God is doing across the globe would happen here with us. And look, there's proof that if we pray this way, that God answers prayers, all right, so you can have multiple different stories that you can go research and find about these movements of revival that have happened. Almost all of them happen and start with prayer. All right, there's one that stood out to me this week. Started in 1815, 1857 here in New York City, or here in the United States in New York City. This is just, it started by this guy, Jeremiah Lamphere. He's just a businessman, all right? And so at this point in time, the greatest depression that was going on in the United States was happening just prior to the Great Depression that would happen in the early 20th century, all right? So he's, millions of Americans, they're without work, they're without hope, and Lanfear is just looking at what's going on around him, and he's just distraught. And so he, he just thinks to himself, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed by what's going on with our country, but I don't know what they'll do. All, all, all I can think to do is to pray. And so he was like, okay, I'm just gonna get some of my business buddies and we're gonna go to the church that we go to and on Wednesdays, every single, every lunch on Wednesday, we're just gonna pray. And the whole thing that we're gonna pray for is we're just gonna pray that revival would happen. 
We're just gonna pray. We're gonna pray that God would come, that he would meet us, that he'd be with us, that those, the things that are happening in our country, the things that are happening in people's lives, like God would come and he would intervene. And these prayer, these prayer lunches, they kind of exploded. They went to different cities. And look, within a year's time, by the fall of 1858, it's estimated that roughly one million Americans became Christians and joined a local church. Most happening in cities within a year's time frame because a businessman took it upon himself to start a lunch prayer meeting that people started coming and they were praying rigorously that God would come and show up. The evangelist D.L. Moody, the missionary Hudson Taylor that went to what was a missionary to China, they both came from this prayer movement that happened in 1857. Moody Bible Institute, D.L. Moody started that. Hudson Taylor, some of the most crazy stories that you hear with missions, international missions, happened out of this prayer movement. So look, I wanna be a praying church. Look, what's happening in places like Iran, like this is why we came and we planted this church. The statistics that I just read off to you are ones that like burdened me to come to St. Louis. Like I, I want to be a church that prays like the things that God is doing, the beauty of Christ that's happening in the world. I want to see it on display here. I want us to be a church that prays, that's desperate for God to come and show up. So look, like, Let's, here's what I want for us as a church, all right? I want the, the, the theme of joy and Advent to spill over into 2022 for us. I want the beauty of Christ in the word to just stand out to us. That we're people that we just can't get enough of God in his word. We're people that are desperate in prayer because we want so emphatically to see God come and move here in our midst. Like, I, that's what I want for us as a church. And look, like, it doesn't start with a pastor. It starts with a businessman that was completely convicted by what was going on. He starts to, like, I want that for us as a church. Movements happen from the bottom up, not the top down. Let's be a praying church. So look, the theme of Advent is Joy. We talked about the definition of joy is Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. So he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world, in the word and the world. This is what produced Mary writing a song. Because the character of God became real for her. She had an experience with the living God and he wants to meet with you too. She's overwhelmed by the beauty of Christ in the world. God turning God's kingdom coming and infiltrating the present kingdom, turning it, the world on its head. And we should be desperate to see what God is doing, the beauty that he's doing across the world. We should be desperate to see it here too. So let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that takes God's word seriously, that we draw near to him. And may the joy of Advent spill over into our 2022. Let's pray.